All right, good morning, everybody. So if you were here last week, you know that we finished up our messages in the miracle series uh, with the best miracle of all, the resurrection. And if you're wondering where we're headed next, next week we're going to be starting a new series called Scenes in Acts. That's a little play on words there. Hope you all appreciate that. Uh, Scenes in Acts, where we're going to be looking at some of the most dramatic moments in in the book of Acts. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts at all, it's, it's crazy. It's incredible. I mean, there's miracles, there's mass conversions, there's a shipwreck. There's all kinds of incredible stuff in there. And so it, we, it would take us forever to go through the entire book, so we're not going to do that. But we're going to make some selections of some of the most dramatic moments and talk about those over the next few weeks. Felt like a natural progression to go from talking about Jesus' earthly ministry to talking about what happened in the wake of that ministry when the apostles first started to carry his message into the world. So that's what's coming. But before we start that series, I wanted to take a week and pause and reflect on one of the disciples, on Peter. As I was studying the passion accounts in preparation for Good Friday and studying the resurrection accounts in preparation for Easter, Peter kept standing out to me. And I kept feeling like, man, I want to talk about Peter. But it felt like there wasn't really space in those services to focus on him. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to to talk about Peter. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the 12 disciples, many of them, we don't really get a sense of their character. They're not even mentioned that much. But that's not the case with Peter. Peter's personality leaps off the page. It's consistent in every gospel. You see it in every one. Um, he's zealous. He's impulsive. Uh, he's definitely flawed. And I think for many of us, he's very, very relatable. And his story is just an incredible reminder of how abundant God's grace is. And so, cards on the table, that is my goal this morning, is just to remind us of the grace of God and and to feel that uh, this morning. So to do that, let's start with Mark 14. I'm actually going to be jumping around a lot in Scripture this morning. You'll notice if you have the notes in front of you that there's a lot of Scripture passages there. So we're going to move around a lot. But, yeah, we're starting with something that takes place on the night of the Last Supper. Mark 14, 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today... Yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. If this is a sports replay, just imagine that over and over again. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now, with those words in mind, let's fast forward just a few hours in history Okay? And just a few verses in Mark chapter 14, uh, to forward to uh, verse 66. This is right after Jesus is arrested. 
While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing, sorry, after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Now, when it says that he began to call down curses upon himself, what that means is he basically said, if I'm lying, may God curse me. It's kind of like saying, cross my heart and, and hope to die, except it's more intense than that. It's, you know, may I be damned, you know, if I'm telling a lie. That's how strongly he is disavowing Jesus in this moment. So continuing in verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. I have to imagine that one of the main reasons that Peter weeps here is because he's acutely aware that he has no excuse at all for his behavior. You know, Jesus just told him that he was going to do this, and he vehemently denied that he was going to do it. Uh, he said he would die before he would disown Jesus. He said that even if every other disciple abandoned Jesus, he would stick with him. You would think that, you know, simply out of pride alone, uh, Peter would have kept his word, even if it wasn't out of faithfulness to Jesus. But he doesn't, right? His fear so overwhelms him in this moment that he doesn't even remember this exchange between him and Jesus just a little while earlier. It's not until the rooster crows that suddenly he's pulled back into that moment and he goes, oh. I blew it. And I'm sure in that moment when he realized I blew it, his mind instinctively grasped for some excuse, some justification, something to lessen the feeling of responsibility. But there was nothing because he just did what he said he would never do. You know, if you've ever felt like you committed a sin and you've got no excuse at all, for that sin, then you have something in common with Peter. You should be able to identify with this moment. Peter had no excuse, and maybe you have no excuse either. I think that the hardest sins for us to acknowledge in our lives are the ones where there's nothing to dull the responsibility that we feel for them. You know, it's easier to confess a sin when, when you, you can say something like, well, that was before I was a follower of Christ. You know, or that was when I was young and immature. Or um, that was a really stressful, confusing time in my life or, or something like that. But when we don't have any of those excuses to, to lessen that sense of responsibility, the guilt that we, we feel can just be crushing. Right? It can be devastating. Even when we have excuses, <laughs> the guilt that we feel uh, can still be crushing and devastating, but especially when we, we can't dull that sense of responsibility. 
Now, there's somebody else in the passion narrative uh, who feels this sense of crushing guilt, this I have no excuse for what I've done guilt. And that person is Judas. Okay, Judas the betrayer. Judas, the one who, in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, told the religious authorities where they could find Jesus and arrest him. So let's look at what Judas does when he experiences this guilt. This is Matthew 27, uh, starting in verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. For Judas, the guilt that he feels is so overwhelming, it's so crushing, that he kills himself. Now that, of course, is a very extreme response to guilt, but I'm sure that Judas was not the first person or the last person uh, to commit suicide because he doesn't know how to deal with his guilt. Guilt can be that overwhelming. And even if our guilt doesn't usually lead us to punish ourselves by taking our own lives, it can lead us to punish ourselves in a whole bunch of other ways. Um, I actually, in preparation for this message, I, I googled uh, the relationship between guilt and self-punishment. And I found psychological studies about how they've determined that if someone is in the room with somebody that they feel that they wronged, even in a slight way, they're more likely to keep their hand held in frozen cold water for longer. Uh, which sounds crazy, but there's actually like real data to back this up. Um, we have a, a tendency to punish ourselves uh, when, we feel, when we feel guilty. And just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that Guilt is an unhealthy emotion. Guilt is, does have a function in our lives, okay? But right now, I'm trying to emphasize this idea that there's this relationship between guilt uh, and self-punishment. And, self and so some ways that we might punish ourselves. You know, we might stay in a, an abusive relationship because we feel guilty because of something we did in the past. Maybe we, we broke up with somebody or cheated on somebody that we, we, we think we should have been faithful to. And then we think, well, I deserve this abusive relationship um, because of what I did in the past. And so we don't, we don't uh, look for anything better because of that. Or you know, we might feel guilty for enjoying ourselves at all. We might feel like we should re really be denying ourselves any pleasure because of some sin, some mistake uh, from our past. And we might cut ourselves off from the love of God, the love of our creator, because we feel like I did something wrong and I don't deserve that love. So many of us handle our guilt in a Judas-like way. Okay? Even if we don't go as far as to commit suicide, we handle our guilt like Judas. But let's get back to Peter. Okay. Peter has just denied that he even knew Jesus, and he's even called on God to curse him if he's lying, which he is, right? And he did that just a few hours after promising that he would not do that. Okay. So Peter had every reason to feel this crushing guilt, and he had every reason to respond the way Judas did, right? Um, but 
That is not what he did. And, and here's the way that I would describe the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas cut himself off from life, but Peter ran to the source of life. Judas cut himself off from life, but Peter, when the resurrection occurred, ran to the source of life. So listen to these words from uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 9. This is the resurrection account. Uh, this is describing when the women who first saw the empty tomb come back. It says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told, the, told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So all the disciples are like, what are these, what are these crazy women saying? You know. Well, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Peter ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So notice those words, ran to the tomb. Ran to the tomb. Peter knew he had sinned against Jesus. That's why he wept, but he didn't let his guilt keep him from Jesus. He didn't go, oh, shoot, he's resurrected? I got to get out of here. I disowned him. He's going to kill me. No, he hears that Jesus is, is alive or that he might be alive. And his first instinct is to run in that direction. In John's gospel, there's another moment after the resurrection where Peter does this running toward Jesus thing, which I think is, is beautiful. Uh, several of the disciples are out in a boat fishing. And then one of them realizes that Jesus is on the shore. Uh, and this is what it says. Uh, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him, heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. I think of Jesus here being like a big golden retriever, you know, who sees his master on the shore. He doesn't even wait for the boat to come in. He's just like, ah, oh, it's Jesus. I'm so excited to see him. And he runs towards him. And then uh, the resurrected Jesus saw Peter, looked him in the eye, and said, you said you don't know me. Get lost. I don't know you. No. <laughs> See, that's what we, when we've sinned and we feel that guilt, that's often what we think Jesus is going to do when we run towards him. It's what we think he's going to do when we feel that crushing, I have no excuse guilt. But the Gospels tell us something so different. And one of the ways that they tell us something different is through this little detail that's easy to miss in Mark's gospel. And when I first realized this, I, I mean, it, it choked me up a little bit because I thought it was so, so beautiful. When the angel in Mark's gospel uh, speaks to the women at the empty tomb, this is what he says. He says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, why did the angel say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Why didn't he just say, go, go tell the disciples? Well, my theory is because the angel is trying to make it very clear, don't leave out Peter. Yet, last we heard of Peter, Peter disowned Jesus. He disowned him three times. 
And yet the angel is like, Jesus still wants to meet him in Galilee. Don't leave him out. Tell the disciples and Peter. The plan has not changed. And this morning I realized that there may be some of us who think that we've sinned. We've got no, no excuse. No excuse at all. We should have known better. So Jesus doesn't want to meet with us. And if you think that, you're probably right about everything except the last part of that. Jesus still wants to meet with you. He doesn't want you to be like Judas, going off and and hanging yourself. He wants you to run toward him. He wants to meet with you personally. In fact, Jesus is eager enough to meet with Peter that he actually meets him before they go to Galilee. Uh, This is something that you don't hear talked about very much because none of the Gospels tell us the details about this. But it is said very clearly in the Gospel of Luke that Peter encountered Jesus before the other disciples encountered the risen Jesus. Um, Remember, last time we heard of uh, Peter in Luke's Gospel, he was running to, to the tomb, and then he saw that there was nothing there, and he went away confused, right? Well, the next time that we hear about Peter, uh, it's when he's gathered with the rest of the disciples and some travelers come to tell the disciples that they have seen the risen Jesus. So it says, the travelers got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And just in case there's any confusion, Simon is Peter. It's Simon Peter. So at some point in between Peter running to the tomb and then walking away, like, what happened? And then these people coming and telling the the disciples that Jesus has risen, sometime in between there, Peter saw the risen Jesus. So not only did Jesus want to meet with Peter, but he was so eager to meet with him that he went out of his way to meet with him individually, personally. That's how much Jesus wanted to meet with that sinner. It's amazing. Now, you might wonder, as I have often wondered, why don't we get any of the details of this encounter between Jesus and Peter? Why are the scriptures silent about that? And my theory on that is the only way we could have known about that meeting is if Peter revealed the details. And I think that that moment was just a little too personal, a little too tender, for Peter to want to say much about it. Because, remember, the last thing Peter did was disown Jesus, and now he's seeing the risen Jesus for the first time after that. That was probably a very emotional, powerful moment, and I suspect that he wanted to keep the details of it just between him and Jesus. He did say, hey, I saw him, and let all the disciples know. But beyond that, I think he just wanted to to keep it between the two of them. But whatever the case, whatever the reason we don't know the details, the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus did not reject Peter, right? He was eager to meet with Peter even after what he did, and Jesus made it a point to meet with him personally. And not only that, okay, Jesus didn't just meet with him. He didn't just forgive him, but he did something else too. And we see this in John chapter 21. This is after Peter jumps out of the boat and runs towards Jesus. When they had finished eating, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, what is going on here? Jesus asks Peter the same question three times, and the scriptures even tell us, of course, Jesus already knows the answer. He knows all things. So why does he ask him the same question three times? Well, this is like a reversal, okay, of what happened earlier, right? Because earlier, uh, Peter, Peter disavowed Jesus three times, and here he is affirming uh, his faith and his love in Jesus three times. And I think what Jesus is doing here is providing an opportunity for, for, Jesus to be, for, for Peter to be set free from that experience. Okay? It's like an almost formal way of Peter saying, yeah, that wasn't me, or <laughs> I'm, I'm turning away from that past version of myself that rejected you, and I'm embracing and acknowledging that I, I love you, Lord. And, and Jesus is giving him this opportunity to do this in this particular way, to set him free. Okay, from that, that past sin. He's helping Peter to start a new chapter. Okay, now I said that Jesus doesn't just meet with Peter, he doesn't just forgive him, but he does something else. And this is what he does, okay? He commissions Peter, right? Three times he says, feed my lambs or feed my sheep, something, something like along those lines. And what that means is, Peter, take care of my, my people, Okay? Take care of the church. Protect them from false teaching. Give them the gospel. That's the work that I've called you to do. Now, what Jesus was doing here was actually reaffirming the calling that he had given Peter earlier. Earlier during his earthly ministry, he said to Peter, Peter, you are, you are, you are a rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Right? You, you are somebody who is going to feed my people, my church. Um, and you would think, though, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if after Peter had denied Jesus, he thought, man, I'm not much of a, of a rock at all. Jesus probably is going to build his church on somebody more dependable than me. But no. Here Jesus reaffirms that calling. Take care of the church. Be the rock. You know, if you have ever been stuck in feelings of guilt, not only does Jesus want you to uh, move toward him and experience forgiveness, but he also wants you to move into a calling. He wants, to move, move in, he wants you to move into a particular task, a particular role, a particular job that he has for you. Now, just to be clear, okay, the job that God may have for you might look entirely different than the way it looked for Peter. Peter had a, a special calling that God had for him. But, but God has a special calling for all of us. For all of us, he has work for us to do. Uh, we're all part of the body of Christ, which means we all have different roles and responsibilities, different gifts and talents. And D Jesus doesn't want to just forgive us so that we can sit around. 
He, he wants to forgive us uh, and call us and commission us into a task, into fullness of life that, that includes uh, being his hands and feet in the world. So God's grace doesn't just forgive us, but God's grace also empowers us to do his work in the world. So here's the bottom line, okay? Whether we have been dealing with crushing guilt or not, what I want us to hear this morning is that God still wants to meet with us, and he wants to put us to work. He's saying to each one of us, regardless of what's happened in the past, love your neighbor, Okay, this is your commission. This is your task. Love your neighbor. Don't wallow in guilt. Love your neighbor. Be a blessing. Okay, serve somebody. Last week, you might remember, we talked a little bit about this concept of condemnation. And I talked about how when, when you think of condemnation, think of it like a building, when a building gets condemned. Right? When a building gets condemned, what that means is this building is no longer fit for use. It is not useful. Stay away. Okay? And when we feel this, this guilt, we often have the sense that I'm no longer fit for use. Right? But Jesus wants to redeem us. Okay? Jesus' declaration over us is redemption, which means not you are no longer fit for use, but I can use you. You know, we can put you to work. So when Jesus redeems us, he's saying, you are still fit for use. I've got a job for you, and it's a good job. Now, what exactly that job is, I can't tell you that. You know, I don't know. Like I said, God has a unique calling on each of one of our lives, and the particular thing that he's calling to you to may change season to season. Okay, so that's something that you have to to work out with God that you have to talk to him about. But I guarantee that he has something for you. And if you're not sure of what that is, what I encourage you to do uh, during this reflection song that's about to happen and during this week is to hear Jesus saying to you, love your neighbor. Do you love me? Love your neighbor. And then ask him to show you what does that look like in my life? Okay, how do I do that practically? in my own life, and then let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story um, and the reminder of, of grace that's in it. Lord, I pray that if any of us are really struggling uh, with a sense of guilt, that our guilt would not lead us to this sense of condemnation, this feeling of we are no longer fit for use. But I pray rather, Lord, that it would, it would inspire us to run towards you, to experience your forgiveness, your grace, and to experience your empowerment of you, of you saying to us, um, love your neighbor, serve. I've got a task for you. I, I want to put you to work, and it's going to be good work. Lord, I pray that we would not be like Judas who went out and hung himself trying to pay for his sins uh, through self-punishment, Lord. I pray that we would, we would recognize that, that you have paid the price for our sins and that through, through you uh, we can have abundant life here and now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.